Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am here at the Artificial Intelligence Conference in San Francisco, and I'm with Sidha Gunju, who is a data scientist at Deep Vision. And Sidha, welcome to the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested and started in machine learning. So I think I got started in machine learning during my undergrad days. Okay. So I had gone to a hackathon and I met this mentor there. His name is Anurad Kohl. And we worked on a project there, which was called Orphan Locator, which is basically trying to locate missing children using the police databases. And we used a very simple image matching algorithm there. So I think that was my first introduction to machine learning. Then after the hackathon, when I came back to college, I was like, I want to know more about it. So I think like everybody else, I started doing the Coursera course on machine learning. The engineering course? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I guess after that, I applied for a master's degree in data science. Uh So I just graduated this year from Carnegie Mellon with a master's in data science. And then at CMU, I worked on what is called visual question answering. So that's an AI hard task, which basically provides an image to a computer and a user or a human is expected to ask a question about the image. Mm -hmm. Now, this question can be about any activity or the number of people or something related to the image or the scene within the image. Mm -hmm. And the computer or the AI system is expected to provide an accurate answer to that question. Okay. Now, there are many uses of VQA or visual question answering. One Mm -hmm. is obviously for the visually impaired, Mm -hmm. but another use is for people in situationally impaired. For example, like if you're in a car and you're driving, Mm -hmm. so you don't want to be looking at your phone. So your phone can basically give you a description of the images that somebody just sent you. Or Uh if you're a security analyst, then you don't have to comb through hours of video footage you can just query, like, what did the man take from that shopping mall? Mm-hmm. So you can just, you know, you can just describe the situation sort of to right. a system. And the system can provide you those frames in which that happened. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the examples of VQA. And our research was focused on how can we use visual questions as a form of supervision for improving computer vision models because in the future it'll become common for humans to ask visual questions to computers like Mm -hmm. where did i leave my keys or what breed of dog is this Mm -hmm. now if you look at this question there is a lot of information already provided in the question itself like the object or the animal we're talking about is a dog and extra uh, like etc so that's primarily where the research was focused. Okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And here at the conference, you're, you did a talk, or yes. you're, I forget yeah. you're doing, or you, you, you I did, did it, it yesterday. yesterday. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And, but that talk wasn't on VQA, that talk was Yeah, on... that was actually on embedded deep learning, which is how you can take deep learning algorithms, which are compute intensive, and they are pretty, they are pretty big in size, Okay. And how you can take them to embedded devices 
because embedded devices have limited compute available and have, they have limited storage. Right. So how can you run these algorithms at inference time on these devices? So this is basically the work that I'm doing currently at my company, Deep Vision. Okay. And is that the focus at Deep Vision or is that just one of the many things that the company's working on? So that is the focus of Deep Vision, basically to... Tell us about a little bit about the company. Yeah, sure. So the company was founded by two Stanford PhD graduates, Rehan and Vajahat. Okay. And the hardware or the processor that they developed was during their PhD itself at Stanford. Okay. And this hardware is basically, it has high performance per watt. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it is programmable enough so you can run a wide range of algorithms, okay. which includes both traditional computer vision algorithms and deep learning algorithms on the same device itself. Okay. So if you look at most of the processor these days, if you want high performance, mm-hmm. then it's ideal to develop what is called a custom hardware or a fixed function hardware, mm-hmm. which is built basically for that one particular operation that you want. Okay. And on the other hand, if you want a broad spectrum device, which is programmable, so you can run a lot of things on it, mm-hmm. it will be not as efficient as the fixed function hardware. Mm-hmm. And an example of programmable devices are the GPUs or the graphical processing units. Mm-hmm. But these have a high cost, so they're expensive. Mm-hmm. And... They're also like really big, so you can't mm-hmm. actually put them on embedded devices. Right. So they were able to figure out a way to bridge the gap between performance and programmability okay. through which they developed this processor. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so does the company compete with or play in the space, same space as the Intel Movidius? It's actually a little different okay. because... We are building both the hardware and the software. Okay. And I don't think Movidius follows that plan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but the hardware is specifically focused, I'm inferring from the name Deep Vision, on mm-hmm. visual types of uh, so, problems and, and like CNNs, for example. So we can run like CNNs. We can also run LSTMs on it. So it's okay. not particularly just the convolutions. Okay. So, yeah, like a broad range of deep learning basic systems can be run on it. Okay. So why don't you walk us through your talk and the major points that you were trying to convey to the audience there? Sure. So as I already mentioned about the hardware innovation, which is bridging the gap between the performance and the programmability. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the basic ideas behind this is that the convolution operation that basically belongs to one of the classes of those computations for which it's possible to build efficient hardware when you build it in ASIC format or application-specific integrated circuits. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what they did. And they were able to basically optimize this convolution. Now, if you look at traditional computer vision methods, most of them have like an overlapping stencil or like a sliding window mm-hmm. on which they run operations, mm-hmm. which if you think about it, is similar to a convolution. Mm-hmm. So 
And additionally, it's also similar in like MapReduce operations. Okay. That's also like a window and you're repeating the method over and over again over different windows. Mm -hmm. So this is basically how they got the idea to optimize this one particular class of functions. And it has wide applicability over traditional computer vision and deep learning algorithms. Okay. And the other thing that I mentioned in the talk was that why are we focusing on embedded devices or edge devices? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the data available for embedded devices, it's approximately more than 150 zettabytes of video data. Mm -hmm. So if you think about where this is coming from, like airport surveillance cameras, right. traffic light cameras, right. basically all the cameras that you see anywhere, they have embedded devices in them. And they need someone to be looking at the videos right now. Mm -hmm. But it is a hope that these can be automated eventually. Mm -hmm. So that's where you will need these devices to be intelligent enough right. to perform real-time analysis. So the idea is that you've got tons and increasing amounts of surveillance yeah. data all over from security devices, you know, smart Even city initiatives. Security. Yeah. you know, down the home security and mm -hmm. eventually maybe our phone cameras will be always on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are some people worried about, you know, scenarios like that. But yeah, in any case, there's just tons and tons of video data mm -hmm. all over the place. And right now people are reviewing that manually and you would, the company is kind of building towards a model where you're training models to you know, identify various, you know, features like, you know, objects or people or things like yeah. that. And you would deploy those models out to devices, inference engines that live mm -hmm. at the edge and yeah. can basically raise flags when different yeah. things are happening. Yeah. One more thing is that the models that you train, like for home security, it will be different than for example, airport security, mm -hmm. because in home systems, you need to recognize like five or six people. Mm -hmm. Not more than that, but in airport, you need to recognize like thousands of people instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So the way of training the models and developing the models in both these scenarios is completely different. So we're also looking into how to train each one and how to make each one dense enough mm -hmm. so that the model is extremely small so that we can fit it onto these embedded devices. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they should be accurate enough that we are getting the correct results. Mm -hmm. So is the you mentioned the number of people that you're that you're trying to identify. So it sounds like one of the main use cases is, you know, in the security scenario, mm -hmm. you know, I see this person, you know, in this frame here, mm -hmm. pull up other frames in, in videos where that person appears. Yeah. Uh, where you're so the the salient point being not just, you know, identifying when there yeah. are people, but it's identifying specific people like Maybe what are the specific use, use cases, cases or, you know, that tie to yeah. specific kind of model uh, classes, I guess? So I think once the technology is in place, the possible use cases are endless. But right now we're focusing on two main ones. Mm -hmm. And again, I talked about both of these yesterday. So okay. these are face recognition and yep. scene description. So face okay. recognition is basically finding out the name of a particular person based on the image of that particular person. And scene description is giving out a caption or a description for a scene 
which is within the image. Now, scene description has uses in home security systems mm -hmm. because right now the home security systems are such that they alert you that there is motion detected outside your house or right. something is happening, but they don't tell you what is happening. And sometimes, for example, the UPS is here with a package. Yeah, so like our system can say, okay, the UPS guy is here with a package and it's okay. dropped on your front door. Okay. Or like similar things like that. And again, face recognition can say if, like, say you saved your son or your daughter's face in your system, you know that they're coming home. And so the system just tells you, okay, this person has reached home. Okay. So that's another use case. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, at least for me, as you were describing, you know, what you were trying to do, it's easy to get carried away and imagine, like, tons of use cases. Yeah. But they're all, when you think through, like, the kinds of models that they would require, they're all really different. Right. And so you have to really focus, at least now, on some very specific use cases. Yes, that's true. But another thing is that in order to develop, say, even activity recognition, mm -hmm. you need to have some basic recognition capabilities. For example, you need to define like what an arm is mm. or any other body part. So that recognition capability comes from like what is possible again in face recognition. Okay. So what I'm saying Elaborate is, on that. yeah. So that's basically like when you have one face recognition model in place, uh -huh. the only thing you have to do is tweak it a little bit to make it into activity recognition. Like in place of images in face recognition, you would need a time sequence or a frame sequence in activity recognition. Are you talking here about transfer learning, meaning you've trained a model um, on on faces and now you can use it to identify no. arms? Or are we talking no, 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 more no. about sequence-related things or something totally different? Um, I think it's something totally different. Okay. Yeah. Great. So what I mean is that once you have the basic capability in place, like being able to recognize faces, right. it is just parts of this algorithm or parts of this model that you would be reusing in other models like activity recognition. Now, you won't be using the exact same weights because that would be completely different. Mm -hmm. And you would have to retrain the, or actually not retrain, train from scratch the activity recognition model. Mm -hmm. But that said, the basic elements in both of these are the same, like the convolutions or the LSTMs. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying you're, you're building up your the model architecture share a lot of common characteristics. Yeah, something okay. like that, yeah. Something like that, but not quite that? I didn't actually understand what you oh, said. I, so, so the model architecture share a lot of common characteristics, meaning you're using the same general model architectures, yeah. you know, the yeah. different types of layers, convolutional yes, layers. Yes, 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 yeah, and, yeah. That's a okay. very easy way to explain it, yeah. Okay. okay. I should have said that. So interesting. So I guess what... I'm curious about is you develop models. I'm assuming that the the way that you would go about this is you want to develop facial recognition mm -hmm. models mm -hmm. and you, you know, survey the literature, figure out what are the, you know, best performing yeah. model architectures yeah. mm -hmm. to to do that, you know, implement those, train those, and then you've got this this model that probably doesn't fit on your embedded device. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a process that you go through to go from that model to yeah. one that fits. Mm -hmm. Like walk us through, 
you know, how, how much of that is art and how much of that is science? And、um, walk us through like the、yeah. thinking as you do that. Yeah, sure. So, this process is actually called pruning. Okay. So, how you can go from like a big model to something that is just 11, like reduced to 11 times its original size. Okay. So, the way to do this is so pruning basically has three different steps in it. Well, I think there are three different steps in it.、Okay. So, first is you need to statistically analyze your model to ensure that the weights follow a bell curve distribution, like a normal distribution. No, I get that part. Yeah. I, yeah. I think you're responding to me looking up, like, okay, why, so why is it important that your weights are yeah, yeah. distributed so, in that because way? Because when you're going to prune it, you're going to use some thresholds.、Okay. Now, you calculate these thresholds using the standard deviation. Okay. And the assumptions of standard deviation are、sure. that it needs to be a bell curve. Right. So. And is it, is it typical or common that your weights、uh, do follow、common. the bell curve? Yeah, for、or? all the models that I've tried it with, they almost always fall into a bell curve. Okay. Yeah. So once you know that it's a bell curve, you move on to the next step, which is the actual pruning stage.、Mm-hmm. So you calculate the standard deviation of the weight matrices.、Mm-hmm. Then you find the quartiles of each weight matrix. So that's basically standard deviation multiplied by one, two, three, four, and so on.、Mm-hmm. Now, for each weight matrix, for example, if you're using a scene description model, that will have an image model and a language model.、Okay. So for each of these, you will calculate their thresholds.、Mm-hmm. Then you can remove. All the weights which are less than that threshold.、Mm. Okay. So, like the first threshold you calculated, say it was zero.、Mm-hmm. So, any number less than zero, you can remove it. Okay. So, this is essentially a technique to identify and rank the contribution of individual weights in your yes. model. Yes. That's, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then you. Rank order these weights in terms of their contribution, and you have some cutoff, and you just remove the weights、yeah. that are that fall beneath that cutoff. Now, it, I'm imagining when you do that, there are ripple effects in terms yeah, of your. Yeah, that's why you need to load these weights back into the model. Okay. And then retrain it. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then, so then you, was that your third step? Yes.、Okay. Retraining is the third step.、Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And then. You can basically repeat this entire process until you reach the most dense model. Okay. And is there empirical work that shows that you know, pruning leads to optimal compact solutions relative to you know, some other process that you know, maybe starts from a smaller, more compact model and trains those、yeah. from scratch or something? So, there are actually different kinds of pruning strategies available.、Okay. So, I remember there's, there are a couple of papers from Stanford that talk about this method, and there are a couple of papers from University of Washington and Allen Institute、okay. that talk about just removing one complete branch. Mm-hmm. So, zeroing out everything in one convolution. Okay. And then retraining it. So, it really depends on what kind of model you have、mm-hmm. and what results you want to attain. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Can you give us a sense for the kinds of results? Well, you mentioned that your 
your models after the pruning process can be like 10% of the size yeah. of the original models. What, you know, in real numbers, like what does that tend uh, to sure. look like? So, so if you talk about the scene description model that we, we worked on, its average inference time, it came down from 8 milliseconds to 2 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. And the accuracy also increased. So for scene description, there are different metrics like Meteor, Blue, Rouge, Insider. So there was an increase of approximately five steps on these uh, Say that again. metrics. Meteor, Blue, Rouge, Insider. Cider, yeah. Cider? C-I-D-E-R. Okay. Yeah. And B-L-E-U. So these are some image captioning metrics. Okay. These are originally machine translation metrics, but they have been adapted okay. to image captioning metrics. Okay. There's also a new metric called SPICE, okay. which is used for image captioning. Okay. And so you're saying that you can train a model, measure it against these metrics, prune the model, and then increase performance? Yeah, because you will have a dense model? network. Like you can change some things in a network, like change the image model to something smaller mm-hmm. and retrain it. And because you're starting from like trained weights, mm-hmm. so you have a good initialization in your system mm-hmm. when you retrain it. So that basically helps in going above the previously attained accuracy level. And just to make sure I'm understanding the previously attained accuracy level for an unconstrained by size model. Yeah, that... So it's just, it's think... counterintuitive to me. I, I, The way I envisioned this is that, you know, the the best performance you're going to get is when you've got a model that's not constrained by, you know, memory power, etc. And then you prune um... it and you make some compromises and you get adequate performance. But with a foot, a model with a footprint that can fit on your embedded device. And what I hear you saying is that you can actually increase your performance and shrink your model down at the same time? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As an example of, again, the scene description model, so if you start from something like Neural Talk, that has a VGG network for its image model and a pre-trained LSTM for its language model. Mm -hmm. Now, if you remove this VGG network and replace it by something smaller like Google Net, Mm And Google Net and VGG Net both lie within the same top 1% accuracy range. Mm-hmm. But if you use Google Net and the same pre-trained LSTM mm-hmm. and retrain this entire system, you can actually get higher accuracy. Hmm. And so for you know folks that are doing research in this area and are you know competing on accuracy, mm-hmm. why don't they all just add another step? in their process of pruning to come up with a better performing model, or at least try that? Because I think that's not their main aim. Like, accuracy is their main aim, but pruning is not their main aim. Right, but you're saying accuracy can improve because you prune. Yes, that's true. But that's I know that because I tried that out as an experiment. Okay. So, I mean, if you're a PhD student, I doubt you will have time to experiment with pruning. Just for fun. Okay. Yeah. And so how, so that I'm not making assumptions here, are you asserting that, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I am jumping to conclusions and you're not asserting that 
increased performance is or accuracy is a general result as opposed to yeah, you just happen to see this. It's you know, not a general. Time. Yeah, oh, that's true. Yeah, okay. it's not a general the, result. It's not going to happen all making. the time. Got yeah, it. it's not going to happen all the time. But there are some cases, like in this case, because the accuracy of both image models lies in the same top one percent range. Mm-hmm. That could be one possible reason why we're seeing the increase in accuracy. Got it. But if I were to use some other image model, the same results might not be repeated and the accuracy might actually decrease. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. So were there other things that you covered in your talk? Um, so you went through your three steps. Yeah, that's pruning. And I think that's about it. I mean, there were a lot of other things, but there's... Not much related to what we're talking about right now. Okay. Yeah. What were the other things then? So like for the face recognition pipeline, that is mostly two steps, like face detection and the actual recognition part. Okay. So can you improve on each one of these individually? Mm -hmm. So for face detection, if you use a standard library or a traditional computer vision system as opposed to something trained on neural networks, Mm -hmm. can you improve the the accuracy, the inference time, and the model size. Mm -hmm. So for face detection, we saw improvement on all these three verticals. Okay. And on face recognition, we trained different models using somewhat similar architecture. Mm -hmm. So Google had released the FaceNet paper, which describes the NN2 architecture. So we built several models around the NN2 architecture and trained it with different input sizes and saw that, you know, there's different inference time, different accuracy that it attains, and different model size that all of these three, oh, sorry, all of these two parameters can change. So that's Mm -hmm. something that I also mentioned in the talk. Okay, so the takeaway there is then that if you are developing a pipeline Mm -hmm. for something like facial recognition or some of these other, you you know, let's maybe generalize it to if you're developing a pipeline generally and you want to get that pipeline to run well in an embedded environment. Yeah, you want to be optimizing like each portion of the pipeline individually. Right. Yeah. As opposed exactly. to just optimizing, you know, yeah. fi- being fixed on your your mm-hmm. your end pipeline yeah. and optimizing that. But that said, it's important to like after you're optimizing each little bit of it, right. you need to go over over like a retraining step for the entire pipeline. Okay. That like this end step is, I think, the most important step. Okay. Okay. So you don't want to skip optimizing the individual pieces, but you want to, once you've done that, optimize the end piece. And is the idea that you start your optimization of the end-to-end system with better initial weights for the individual pieces? That's what I understand. Yeah, okay. based on like all the experiments that I've done. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Can you walk us through, we talked a little bit about VQA. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through, is that something that you work on at Deep Vision as well or is it? Um, so I think VQA will come in eventually because like I said, scene description is something that we use right now. But right. eventually you would also want people to be asking questions to the system so that the system can give you an answer. Okay. Yeah. And can you walk us through kind of what the what the current state of the art is with VQA? What are the approaches that folks are using and kind of generally how they take on that problem? Sure. So 
I don't quite remember what is the state of the art now, but generally the approach is that you take an image model mm -hmm. and you somehow interface or communicate it with a language model which takes the question as input. Mm -hmm. And when you're interfacing these two matrices together, the result will be a single vector, which will be the answer to the question that you have. Okay. So you can replace the image model with ResNet, Inception, GoogleNet, or basically anything or like a mm -hmm. combination of all of these. And the language model usually is an LSTM, or you can also have it as a bag of words vector. Okay. or any other representation of the text. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the work from VQA is coming from Devi Parikh and Dhruv Batra's lab. Now, they also started using reinforcement learning in this. Mm -hmm. So they're just trying to give adversarial answers and questions and having the other computer or the other agent within the same environment, trying to figure out which of these is incorrect and which of these is correct. Okay. So that's a sort of like a brief overview of what's happening in VQA. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And there are some, I don't remember the, maybe you can remind us the name of them. There are some popular data sets that folks are using for from VQA? VQA. Yeah, it's called the MS Coco data set. MS Coco? Yeah, my, it's released by Microsoft and it's the common objects in context. Okay. Now, the, the images in MS Coco are actually really different from ImageNet mm -hmm. because ImageNet focuses on one particular object in an right. image. And whatever the object is in focus, it usually occupies most of the area within the image. Mm -hmm. But in the Coco images, they're like normal scenes, like mm -hmm. say this room, for mm -hmm. example, it doesn't have a specific object or there's no specific person in focus. It's like random, not random, but scenes which have a lot of information in them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's also a release of the second version of the MS Coco dataset that happened this year. Okay. So that dataset actually fixes some of the errors in, not the errors, but actually the biases in the first dataset. For example, in the first dataset, if you had a number question, like how many apples are on the table, mm -hmm. most generally the answer would be three. Or if the question is okay. what color is anything, most generally the answer would be red. And so if you train on this, you develop a model that overfits on yeah, so they actually things. trained like an image-blind model, which never okay. saw the images, only mm -hmm. saw the questions and the answers. So this kind of model would just learn that if this is the question, this is the most probable answer. Okay. And even that performed considerably well. <laughs> so that's the cause why... Because of biases like yes, that. Yes, exactly, right. yeah. So that's okay. why they developed the MS Coco version 2 dataset. Okay. Yeah. Great, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with me. I thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I didn't mention this at the intro, but we initially got connected because you listened to the podcast. Yeah, I had actually listened to Chelsea's podcast, uh -huh. Chelsea Fins. Uh -huh. Yeah, and that's how I really got interested. And I listened to, there was an NLP podcast from someone, I don't remember her name. But it was pretty recent around Chelsea's podcast. And I was like, wow, there's so many things that I don't know. Okay, that so, was Ornitza. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh -huh. it was a difficult name for me to remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening. And thanks very much for, you know, spending some time. 
Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for having this great idea. <laughs> and thank you for having me today. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. Thanks to your support, this podcast finished the year as a top 40 technology podcast on Apple Podcasts. My producer says that one of his goals this year is to crack the top 10. And to do that, we need you to head over to your podcast app, rate the show. Hopefully we've earned your five stars and leave us a glowing review. And more importantly, share the podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, the Starbucks barista, your Uber driver, everyone who might be interested. Every review, rating, and share goes a long way, so thanks in advance. For more information on CETA or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelaicom slash talk slash 95. Of course, we would love to hear from you either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter to at Sam Charrington or at Twimmel AI or at Twimmel AI. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.